Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Foundations are really trying to look at all the value add that they can do. So for us, granting and impact investing is just one tenant of what we can do. We can also put our time, which looks like my time or Alan's time or, you know, so on. Um, And that looks like the Social Enterprise World Forum or it looks like Social Enterprise Australia. And then we can also, philanthropy, um, as you may know, is is quite a closed box sometimes. Mm. And so actually sort of brokering networks or brokering um, opportunities, co-funding opportunities or seeing a social enterprise that's absolutely amazing and going, wow, you'd be a fantastic fit for these guys over here. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse. They're doing an amazing job on all our social media work, making us look far better than I ever could by myself. Today, I'm pleased to announce our latest podcast partner is New Recover. I discovered New Recover recently when I was looking to add the benefits of cold water plunging into my weekly well-being routine. Having tried the cold shower and finding this very unpleasant and ineffective, I was amazed to find a solution that is very reasonably priced at less than 150 Australian dollars, takes less than three minutes to assemble, and is entirely portable. The benefits of cold plunging are many, but for me, I'm particularly impressed with the feeling of rejuvenation and calm that it offers, linked to reduced stress and anxiety, the resilience training it provides, and the boost it gives your metabolism, which can help with weight loss and fitness. The feeling of presence and being in the moment that being utterly freezing for a few minutes each day, for me, is like a beautiful deep long meditation with a raft of other mind and body benefits. It will also make just about everything else you do that day seem far more easy by comparison. To get your portable ice bath or any new Recover products, just head to their website and use the link in our show notes at checkout to get 15% off their impressive product range, and that's an offer exclusive to Humans of Purpose listeners. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Belinda Morrissey. Belinda is CEO of the English Family Foundation, Chair of Social Enterprise Australia, and Chair of Action Aid Australia. The English Family Foundation supports transformational change in our world through the growth and development of social entrepreneurs and social businesses. I was fortunate enough to meet Belinda at the Social Enterprise World Forum in Brisbane late last year and really enjoyed talking to her about the power of the work she is doing with the English Family Foundation and Social Enterprise Australia to chart a course for the growth and development of a flourishing social enterprise ecosystem in Australia. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Belinda as much as I did. I am so happy to have you here, Belinda. Um, no, it's the afternoon. I'm honoured that you've made the trek down from Sydney. You've had an action-packed day. How are you feeling? Pretty good, actually. Thanks, Mike. Not yep. too bad at all. So a very early start, but that's okay. I think the last time we connected would have been Social Enterprise World Forum in Brisbane, sunny Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, we've got sunny Melbourne and sunny Sydney at the moment, so comparable weather. But um, we were on the tail end of what was a wonderful um, global social enterprise conference, and I managed to catch you very briefly uh, for a tipple and um, great chat, and I'm really pleased that you've agreed to do this. So thanks for coming on, first of all. 
Thanks for having me. I'm very privileged. It's a pleasure. So, look, I mean, the way that we normally kick off is to just talk a little bit about your journey into the space. And I'm thinking, you know, how do you get into philanthropy? How do you discover social enterprise? And maybe you can just take us back a little bit into your journey and how you ended up where we are today. Gosh, how long do we have, Mike? Come on. Um, So I guess I've been working in philanthropy for the last sort of decade and a half, but before that I was in the capital markets. Um, And I was working in London for a South African house. And we had the really rare opportunity to actually write the book of business and start it from scratch, which you don't normally get in the capital markets. And one of the clients that I one for them, if you like, was the was a community foundation in the UK and went up there and really started to develop a great relationship because they were my client and that was fantastic. But actually the guy who was the CEO of the community foundation at the time was kind of the granddaddy of community foundations and he kind of took me under his wing and went, hey, little girl, I'll show you, show you the way the world really works. <laughs> and it was my introduction to understanding that my skill set was transferable. Yep. And I hadn't really made that leap of faith before because I wasn't a community worker, I wasn't a teacher or in the medical sector. I was in finance and capital markets, but I was really good at relationships and planning and all of those sorts of things. And so actually he really showed me that it was a very transferable skill set. Did you already have those aspirations to be in community or was it the sort of this opportune moment of meeting this sort of great mentor that enlivened that you? Well, look, I'd always done a lot of volunteering and sort of really looked at that. And I'd moved away from my last job because there was a really difficult non-alignment value, shall we say. Mm. Um, it really felt like you were just, you know, that capital markets was... Too commercial. Yeah, and it was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of people who didn't necessarily have the deep respect that they should have had for their co-workers and things. And that was just that particular environment. So um, when we moved back to Australia, I went and did a postgraduate in philanthropy. And that was the beginning of it all because um, I figured that was the way that I could best use my skill set. It's amazing. And so how do you come to be in the in the orbit of the English Family Foundation? Um, and then I'd love you to tie that back to the Social Enterprise World Forum too. Great. Yeah, I've been really fortunate to be with the English Family Foundation in one form or another for about a decade now, which is kind of weird. I can't believe it's 10 years. It started off um, a day and a half a month consulting in their strategy, um, but it very quickly developed more than that. So um, Alan English, who's the chair and founder of the English Family Foundation, is a self-made entrepreneur and an incredible human being. And um, with my background in capital markets and his sort of entrepreneurial and what he really wanted to achieve through the foundation was very much aligned to the social enterprise space. So for us, it was the realisation that, yes, there is definitely a space for traditional charitable operations and, and outcomes, and that's absolutely fine. But for us, we were very excited about the mechanism that uses market forces to create a just and, and an equitable environment in society and how we could, as philanthropy, really try and accelerate that. I love that answer. And, and there were a number of different vehicles one could operate in in the philanthropic space. What was it about social enterprise that really sort of popped for you in the, the Family Foundation? Yeah, look, initially, I'd have to say we were very excited about the concept of sustainability 
that, you know, obviously philanthropic dollars are very scarce and um, understanding that we could take a social enterprise on a journey and graduate them and then they could go forth and flourish, reality wasn't always quite there. So obviously the social enterprise sector in Australia needs, it still needs a lot of assistance from philanthropy to be that uh, enabling capital, that sort of risk capital at the beginning, if you like. You felt that there was a really obvious role to play there for the family, English Family Foundation? Yeah, look, there was. And I guess being a family foundation, we've always been able to be quite nimble and really work into the gaps in the social enterprise sector. So once we sort of landed at that, then our ability to sort of really engage with uh, trusted advisors in the sector, the social entrepreneurs themselves, and understand where barriers and challenges they were facing and therefore what was the role of philanthropy in uh, enabling or unlocking and overcoming some of those challenges. And so there's this interesting shift, I think, where EFF, English Family Foundation, goes from supporting sustainability and social enterprise maybe you know, in a micro way to a more sy- systemic way. So systems thinking approach, ecosystem, looking at the bigger picture. How do you get to there? What's that journey like? Yeah, that journey is a Really beautiful one, I must say. Um, Look, as I mentioned, we were always able to sort of be quite nimble and fund into the gaps. And a number of years ago... Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Where we were seeing the big gap was actually in the ecosystem in the enabling environment to enable social enterprises to thrive. Um, And what we were really interested in was if philanthropic dollars are are scarce and rare, then where are those sort of acupuncture points that we as philanthropy can work into to create leverage and to unlock greater outcomes, social outcomes? And so for us, actually, the ecosystem was a really, really under funded area. It was one that wasn't sexy. It was no sort of puppy dogs at the end of that. So it's a difficult one sometimes for funders who have set focus areas to fund into because it goes across all of those focus areas. Mm. So for us, we were very excited about the mechanism of social enterprise rather than a particular focus area, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done tremendous work in um, doing a lot of the work and and the momentum and building that kind of movement around um, the creation of Social Enterprise Australia and a national social enterprise strategy. So tell us a bit about that. Sure. So um, that's been very much a, a big collaborative effort, I guess. And back when COVID first hit, um, digital storytellers and Mikey Lung put together the first unconference across Australia. And at that unconference, uh, Matt Farlett from Acre held a session on, do we need a national strategy and is the time now? And I think from memory, there was about 200 odd people online and there was five breakout rooms. And we had pretty much the majority of people in that breakout room because it was something obviously that really touched a nerve and that people were really excited by. 
And I spoke to Matt afterwards and I said, Matt, this is amazing. It's absolutely, you know, where we should be. What can I do to help? And Matt said, right, okay, thank you for that. Um, and so from that really created the beginnings, uh, that session and the impetus and the momentum created the beginnings of what was the SENS, the Social Enterprise National Strategy. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting how like um, timing and setting can mean so much. You know, that, that sort of like a provocation, an open provocation at an unconference. I'm not even sure what that is, to be honest. Is it like a deliberately not a conference or? Yeah, well, the concept of an unconference is that you can put forward ideas to have sessions on. And then the most po- popular or the most sort of well-received ideas then get breakout rooms so that oh, everybody right. sort of co-creates right. what the actual so content like maybe will be. a co-design conference more than a, a non-conference. It's not a non-conference. It's an actual conference. It was online. It was online. Yeah, because yeah, COVID had just conference. hit, so it was yeah. all virtual. And it was an opportunity to really get the sector together and start to hear what the problems were. And, and Mikey's so good at facilitating yeah. those kind of conversations. So it was a, a really beautiful opportunity, I guess, to um, start something that was very collaborative right from the beginning. I love it. I think it's a, it's to be such a, a classic moment of a spark igniting to create change. It's sort of the used um, before acupuncture, which I love as well as unlocking capital in the right places. But um, I really do like that spark igniting change as well metaphor. Well, I have this lovely um, saying that I can't say I came up with. It was actually a Singaporean social entrepreneur at one of the social traders conferences a long time ago, and he said that change comes at the speed of trust. Mm. And for me, that's what the beginning of that that spark, as you said, was off the back of the speed of trust that was already there in the sector, that people knew each other, they understood the realities, the challenges, and that, yes, we did need to move this forward. Um, and that was sort of the impetus to go and actually co-create that. I might use that. I'm going to find it hard to credit that anonymous source, but uh, maybe give me some letters to use. It's just <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful saying, actually. You recently, you've just put in your federal budget submission, uh, which was consulted with 225 participants, uh, which is marvellous. Um, I've got just an extract here that I, I thought was really powerful. I'll just read it to you and just ask you to comment. So Australia faces social, environmental and economic challenges that demand new responses. The social enterprise sector can help. However, social enterprise sits between traditional business and charity. So many fall through the gaps in the supports that exist. It does the job of both without the enablers of either. As a result, it's not realising its potential. So powerful stuff. I mean, talk to me specifically about that idea of it sort of playing um, a lot of the roles of both business and charity, social enterprise that is, but without the enablers that would help it do so. Yeah, look, I have to say that that credit for that that line goes to Alex Hannant, who's on the board of Social Enterprise Australia. And it's just, to me, just encapsulates so much. Because when we look, I mean, the whole reason that the national strategy was instigated was the fact that we need to drive forward a national strategy at federal government level. We've got down here in Victoria, fantastic engagement with Mm. the Victorian government, got Queensland government. We've got varying state governments on board, but there was little, if no, sort of strong engagement from the federal government. So it was really born out of that desire. And then the initial research that was conducted by the UNIS Centre said, 
yep, you actually absolutely do need to have a federal government st- uh, strategy. But before you do that, the sector itself has to come together. Mm. The sector doesn't talk with one voice and you need to get a shared vision, a shared um, set of values and principles that the sector agrees to and hears their voice in. Yep. And so that's the work that's been going on in the background for the last sort of two years, really building all of those foundational elements. Social Enterprise Australia was born to be the vessel to hold all of that work. And so the recognition that social enterprises, um, that they do the work of both charities and corporates, but they don't necessarily have access to all of the charity subsidies and government engagement, yep. and they miss out on a lot of the corporate benefits. There's no specific, or there is, sorry, I won't say no, because there's yep. definitely a growing momentum in yep. government, yep. but it's there isn't a commonality of access. Yeah. And it's super, super interesting that that's a really well identified sort of governance challenge as well, because um, the difference might be in part that business has very effective peak bodies and lobby groups and not-for-profits have peak bodies that do all the governance and lobbying and, you know, access to, to government and um, social enterprise just hasn't had a coordinated version of that um, sort of nationally. They do now. They do now. Absolutely. Exactly. Very so. exciting. And like, it's a really exciting time yeah. when we look at the government, the changing government. Yeah. I mean, I, was, I think like a, a skeptic could say, look, why do you need a, like a peak body isn't a solution. So it can't by itself be a solution, but it's definitely necessary in the right time to have that unified voice. Because, you know, even as a, just a person who watches social enterprise and I suppose works in a social enterprise and as a podcast, it's a social enterprise, like you sort of see these um, almost like beacon points of social enterprise activity, like the World Forum, yes. um, like Senvic, that's been doing great work for a couple Absolutely. of years now. You mm-hmm. see, you know, Queensland has got some great activity in that space. But, but then you sort of think to yourself, all right, how does it all come together? And what I've been really enthused and buoyed by is just receiving these emails from Jess Moore. She's your CEO. Incredible there. CEO. Yeah, it's incredible CEO. And just sort of like the way that you've done it, it's such a like um, an unconference approach to developing core principles and getting the, the system set up. I mean, so much consultation and meetings and like open participation and it's just lovely and inclusive. And that's been really key. And I think Jess has been absolutely fundamental in that approach because if we are to be, as in Social Enterprise Australia, is to be the peak body, then it has to be representative. It has to be the voice of the sector. And so it's not about the ego of being a peak body. It's actually about how do we create a mechanism that enables those voices to be heard because those voices are amazing and they've always been there. It's just that they haven't necessarily had a unified point of contact into the federal government. They've had unified points through their networks and other components, but it's just about how do you actually be that golden thread that can sort of weave it together and actually create one coherent ask rather than multiple components. Yeah. And so is the idea, and I'm not sure if you're there that so please fill in the gaps for me, is it a federated model so each state has their own um, like SEN or social enterprise network that then does it feed up into SEA or is it separate or parallel? So all of the state networks were um, have been in existence for a while. Tasmania is only recently. Um, QSEC. Queensland Social Enterprise Council is celebrating 10 years. It's amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, So it's not about circumventing the state networks. We actually work really closely with them. In fact, we provide the secretariat support. Um, But what we are doing is providing and building the infrastructure 
to enable the environment for networks of all sorts, thematic, place-based, capacity building, to be able to come together and thrive. So it might be Moving Feast down here in Melbourne is a fantastic network of social enterprises, but we need to be supporting them better. We need to be supporting the state networks, um, other thematic groups across the country, uh, even the brand social enterprise, mm. which was about 30 social enterprises coming together to create that brand awareness that was launched last year at the Social Enterprise World Forum, mm. um, that's also, that's a capacity building thematic group coming through Social Enterprise Australia. So it's an aggregator. It's not a hierarchical element, so they don't all report into us. Yep. It's an aggregator. It's a consolidator of what is already there and rich and amazing, but how do you create an environment where all boats rise? Yeah, I love it. And so that's a really important point. It's not to displace what's already there or Absolutely. it's to harness and leverage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And to shine a light on it because um, there isn't, I really do feel sometimes that we're inside this cone of silence. And that was one of the really strong impetus is behind the Social Enterprise World Forum was that it was a moment in time, this tipping point in time that we could really aggregate and collect interest into social enterprise and harness it for that sort of solid week. I mean, yes, there was other elements as this massive runway up to that point, but how do you shine a light and get media, government, corporates, get all these cross-sectoral elements interested and excited by an understanding social enterprise. That's yeah, and I must challenge. say, kudos to you and the foundation and everyone who played a role in that social enterprise world forum being in Australia for the first time. It was phenomenal. It was the best conference. Second time. Second time. 2009, it was here in Melbourne. My mistake. Uh, my, <laughs> my first time being at one, and uh, it was just one of the best conferences I've ever been to. So It was amazing, wasn't it? And, yeah. look, it wasn't just us. Um, White Box actually led it and took yep. it on. It was, you know, Huge kudos to them to actually take that initiative on because there was a point in time that was looking a bit dodgy. But it was, you know, we worked on it with Tom Allen and QSEC and others for like four years. And it wasn't solidly four years, but yeah. it took that long to put right through the initial application. Yep. Um, and then working through and obviously um, us within philanthropy, it was in, in, you know, the ability to sort of bring other funders around with us and, and work on that side of things because this all takes yeah. time and money. So and, and let's let's just tap into that for a little bit. So how much of what you do is coalition building for a cause like social enterprise and, you know, so to speak, finding those um those the the right vessels in a way to take you to the pressure points and alleviate though that you know the, the challenges of the bulwarks to social enterprise mm -hmm. thriving. Yeah, look, that's a great question. And I think that the way that we work within the English Family Fashion Foundation might be slightly different, but it's becoming more normal um, where foundations are really trying to look at all the value add that they can do. So for us, granting and impact investing is just one tenant of what we can do. We can also put our time, which looks like my time or Alan's time or, you know, so on. Um, and that looks like the Social Enterprise World Forum or it looks like Social Enterprise Australia. And then we can also, philanthropy, um, as you may know, is, is quite a closed box sometimes. Mm. And so actually sort of brokering networks or brokering um, opportunities, co-funding opportunities mm. or seeing a social enterprise that's absolutely amazing and going, wow, you'd be a fantastic fit for these guys over here. And so really that networking 
brokering, if you like, that sort of network weaver, to use the American phrase, is yeah. also really important as well. So, so is that a big part of your job? Is, it's is pretty of, much everything yeah, I do. Yeah. Every, it's identifying opportunities, thinking about your networks, thinking of like how to, um, I guess, cross-refer, pull people in. It's pretty much fundamental across whatever we do because yep. even within our grant making, um, our current grant making strategy, and I'm just talking the domestic, we do do global and we are a family foundation so we also have a family budget which is absolutely beautiful. Um, but within the domestic social enterprise budget, even our granting is pretty much strategically focused on what we call breakthrough collaboration, which was a phrase that came out of an article back when COVID hit, the crazy, um, the COVID Alliance for Social Enterprise. Um, and they they um, really talked about breakthrough collaboration as being the collaboration for the greater good rather than individual or organisational benefit. And so that concept of sort of egoless collaboration of like how do we build forth better society, better social outcomes is really what we've been trying to fund into and that's looked like a lot within the ecosystem side. So I love that, breakthrough collaboration. Yeah, it's a great phrase. Again, I probably could give you the actual definition, (laughs) you know, the uh, the source for that one. We might Um, have to follow up with some links after the show. Absolutely. The the Singapore person's quote (laughs) plus also that article reference. (laughs) I wish I could remember that guy's name because it's one of my favourites. They deserve the credit, no doubt. They do, absolutely. It's not me. So, I mean, look, um, sometimes I used to talk a bit about um, humans of purpose um, like being fairly small but casting quite a big shadow. And, you know, that that's because it was like just myself and, you know, a bit, bit of backroom support. Um, you do a lot of different things and obviously you've got a team around you in English and also, you know, you've got your role at, um, as chair of Social Enterprise Australia and Action and Aid too. You talked about how sometimes you might give you time, but, you know, how much time do you have to give and how do you juggle all these responsibilities and how do you make it all work? Yeah, well, look, I am also a, a wife and a mother and a daughter and a friend and all of those other, you know, community member. So, look, it's a really interesting question as a woman. Um, you know, you're supposed to be able to have it all and be a super mom and do all of that. And there's, all, you know, there's pressures or there's not pressures. It's really up to however you look at it. So the way that I've been fortunate enough to be able to put my life together, if you like, is I actually work part-time. So I work three days a week um, and that enables me to be present with my daughter, which I think is really important because she's a very, very special person. Um, It enables me to be present in my family more broadly. And it also enables me to spend time on my passion projects, if you like, which is in my personal capacity, like being, you know, within the ActionAid Australia board. And I couldn't do that as well, not as well, but I couldn't do it as often if I didn't work part-time. And that's just a decision I've taken and our family have taken. It doesn't work for everybody, but for us, my husband works full-time and um, it just, it works for us. I love that. I mean, I just, I really like the way you've explained that. And so you said um, passions, but, you know, in your two days, (laughs) there was still like sort of work, isn't it, like chairing ActionAid? That's that's not work. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, Look, I think it's really interesting because I was, been looking at a lot lately about stress and burnout and there's this argument of whether if you are working in a values aligned role whether you can get stressed and work and burnout and research shows that actually your levels of stress 
are significantly reduced if you believe and have a strong values alignment with the work that you're doing. Mm. So, hey, I'm I'm absolutely blessed in that environment because I'm completely passionate about the paid work that yeah. I do. Uh, and then, yes, it does flow over to your private time, but it doesn't. It's not as stressful. Um, I, I, I like that. You're so I'm an adherent of that um, approach as well. I think. Um, who was somebody um, very far more distinguished than I said, um, when you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. Uh, something <laughs> like to that, that. effect. And, yeah, that's beautiful. I might have to write that one down. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to trade sources at the end of this and make sure we clean <laughs> everything up. But um, absolutely, like I think there is something to that. And I mean, I find the same thing, you know, the podcast is something that I just do because it means a lot to me. And um, if anything, it lifts me up. Um, I actually quite like it. I, I find it to be a hobby rather than like an additional task. Yeah, good on um, you. What are, the, what are the other hobbies that you like to have in those two days? And also the three days, are they hectic or are you managing to fit in like just 89 to 5 those three days? Or I, Those three days yeah, end up on. being over yeah. the five days. Yeah, sure. Um, so you basically do a compressed week in three days. or Yeah, I guess technically. Yeah. But the, but the reality of this kind of work is that it, it's, it needs to be spontaneous yeah. and it needs to be able to fit into other people's schedules. It needs to be able to, you know, to be flexible. And I think having that ability to be flexible and, and spontaneous sometimes is is really important to the way we work. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to look up that source as well around sort of like not like maybe it's what it's saying is in a way doing values aligned work is a protector against burnout, which I think is yeah. really strong um, point. And I guess it's about how you, what stresses you. Yeah. Because so often it's the relationships or the um, perhaps the disrespect, you you know, yeah. being fielded against you or the biases that people bring. I find if you feel supported, that's a huge de-stressor. Yeah, absolutely. So values alignment plus the support of your like team and colleagues, Yeah. then I don't think there's can ever be too much stress. Or well, there can be, but, you know, it's rare. <laughs> Good point. Anyway, pure speculation. Um, one thing we haven't touched on that I'd love to hear a bit about is ActionAid and what's that all about and what drew you there? Well, actually, so ActionAid Australia is, it's about the intersectionality in a way of climate change and gender rights. So it's a human rights-based association that looks at supporting women at the forefront of injustice. So we look at climate injustice, we look at economics injustice, and we look at climate risk reduction, so preparedness. And particularly in some of the countries that we're working in, um, climate disaster um, is, is on the rise you know, there's so many. You look what's happening in Turkey, Turkey and Syria at the moment, and there's just phenomenal amounts of natural disasters happening around the world. That's so. What we're really looking at is we know that I mean, ActionAid is a global federation, and it actually was one of the forefront leaders back in the 70s of this whole concept of community-led international development. Um, so it's that decolonization. We know that the communities have the answers. What we need to do is be the enablers. So we need to be giving them the space, the knowledge, the tools, the mechanisms to be able to realise their own self-determination. And so that's really at the forefront of what we do within ActionAid Australia is how do we enable women to recognise their rights and to take their rights forward. So recognising that they need assistance within their communities, um, but they also, it, you have to take that step back and look at the systemic drivers of those inequalities mm. and understand what those drivers are so that you can then 
look at the different levers available, whether it be policy, corporate government, etc. And sort of we're really the only international development agency here in Australia that still does campaigning, for example. So it's quite fascinating. And so do you, when you cross-pollinate work in such a beautiful way, do they take you through different mindset systems, thinking, decolonisation, social justice principles around international development? Do you take a lot of that kind of action aid thinking into how you do other things like at English Family Foundation and SEA? Yeah, look, there is definitely a cross-pollinisation. And I think I was um, initially my relationship with ActionAid was as a funder because we were funding them doing various bits and pieces in Myanmar and other countries, and that was amazing. And then a few years ago, I did join the board, um, and that was really looking at how can we develop more of a looking, because financial inclusion or economic inclusion is one of the, the core pillars of what we do. So understanding, you know, the economic hubs that we've they've developed in Vanuatu are many social enterprise hubs. And so how do you look at that from a, a capital? And no matter where you're looking at it, it's about understanding where capital is flowing and where social value is flowing and how we connect the two. How do we actually value community development and where does capital flow and this impact investing and orange bonds are all the trend and, you know, su- supporting women entrepreneurs. But that's, and that's fantastic. Absolutely. It's music to my ears. But women need to be empowered to be able to then understand and know that they can go forward and actually create an enterprise mm. and, and develop that and, and really lead their community. So often it's that initial empowering that I think is really important. And the same here in Australia within the social enterprise space, we've got these amazing, incredible social enterprises and and networks, but it's actually how do you take that step back and look at the systemic breakdowns that actually need to be corrected, if you like, Mm. to be able to enable all boats to rise, as I mentioned before. And so what are some of the things that you're hearing sort of at a practical level that that might be enablers for social enterprises across the board? So just say you've got SEA in place as an effective peak body. What are you hearing from all these consultations around the key needs and key things, um, or even just the study that the Unicentre has done about what social enterprises and social entrepreneurs themselves might need to sort of take that next step and start to thrive? Yeah, look, there's a lot of it is in existence and a lot of it needs to be accelerated, if you like. So if we look at social procurement as an example, there is incredible work being done by social traders in relation to actually building out social procurement policies at state government levels, um, but there isn't a social procurement policy at government at federal government level. So those types of levers, which doesn't actually necessarily introduce new dollars into the system, is actually just how you spend your dollars with a greater social outcome. Those are the kind of mechanisms that can be then triggered to be able to unlock a bigger marketplace for social enterprises. And that's what they need. They need the social enterprise marketplace. So uh, demand, consumerism, demand, you know, um, at Christmas time, there was a plethora of sort of platforms that were promoting social enterprises. And, you know, you buy from this group of social enterprises over here or this group over there. And that really wasn't around before. No, it wasn't. It's quite amazing how far it spread. I mean, I can, I'm in a bubble myself or a um, cone of silence, as you put it. So <laughs> yeah. at Info Exchange, if you were ever to do something and it didn't go through some sort of social enterprise or, you know, it's a gift or a um, catering or something, you'd be shunned probably permanently. Well, but isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I because think so. Because our consumer dollars are so important. Yeah. And, and it's hard. 
because, you know, Australia is facing so much inequality. So not everybody has this beautiful luxury of being able to make a decision with their financial dollars. So it's about how we actually then make social enterprise more accessible as yeah, well. Yeah, I like that. I always think about like both business and personal supply chains. So, you know, how do we make sure that social enterprise becomes like a core part of your personal consumption decisions uh, or your personal supply chain as well as your business supply chain, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or you, you're in a business and employee, like making, pushing those ideas up to the top. Yeah, absolutely. But that takes knowledge and awareness around what social procurement is yeah. at the business side. And that's where you need enablers like yeah. social traders and the state networks to be able to build that out. Yeah. So that's that's just sort of one example. Obviously, access to capital is a really important yeah. one. And we know that the Social Impact Investment Task Force, which was created under the Morrison government, were given an opportunity to reframe their recommendations to the Albanese government. And that is really exciting because that federal government light, if you like, and, you know, the task force um, credibility going in to advise the government is going to be really important around that. There's also a number of payment by outcomes um, methods around that's interesting. as well. So that's sort of taken from the um, social impact bond sort of model or the um, PBOs. Yeah, it is because yeah. it's looking at how do you really ensure that government funding that is going out as it is yep. is actually going to support better outcomes. Yeah. Um, so the PBO, the payment by outcomes that um, White Box Enterprises mm. is doing around with 16 different social enterprises and they've spent four years co-designing that with the sector and with the government around actually, and it's not necessarily new money coming in, it's government looking at putting their spend for disability-supported employment services into social enterprises and getting much better outcomes. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's very exciting stuff. And so just to give people an idea of the scale and growth of social enterprise, because I think it's quite interesting. I think you mentioned before, I mean, we I thought it was about a, 1% of the Australian workforce is now in social enterprise. You said 1.6% now? Yeah, look, I think what we were able to do with funding from the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, thank you, um, was last year within Social Enterprise Australia, we were able to do the first ever national um, economic yeah. analysis. So valuable and so well amplified, I would say, as well. So important because yeah. now we can go into meetings in Canberra and say X, Y, and Z, and those are really important. And those X, Y, and Z look like the fact that social enterprises, there's over 12,000 social enterprises across Australia. Yeah. It produ- the sector produces at least 1% of GDP, yeah. and that's what we know of. Without doing a full census, we yeah. can't really... It might be closer to 1.5 or something. Exactly. Yeah. It might be more. But then, you know, understanding that there's over 200,000 jobs in social enterprise. So that means 160 jobs is in a social enterprise. Um, and when you start comparing that to other sectors, it then starts to become more sort of clearer and yeah. un- easier to understand. Tangible and easier to act exactly. on as well. Like saying yeah. that there's as many people, you know, as in the mining sector, for example. And we know that mining, a million dollars of turnover in mining creates one job and a million dollars of turnover in the social enterprise sector creates nine jobs. That's phenomenal. Yes. and The and ROI itself, but there's also the social return on investment too. So you Yeah, know. it's really important to be able to like have clarity around 
economic drivers like that then start to change the equation. It's not going in, it's yeah. not a cottage industry, it's not a small charity. This yeah. is actually a sector that contributes to the bottom line of our country. And I think it's, um, I think that's economic snapshot and all the research that's been done is sort of a symbol of the advanced maturity of the sector as well. I mean, it's really grown from really was a very grassrootsy kind of movement base, which is beautiful in its own way. Absolutely. To one that can now compete because we know that decision makers in government and, and big funders at the end of the day do care about numbers. Uh, it's how the rubber hits the road. Yeah. It's not always about social equity, although it'd be good if it was. Um, so, you know, to have that data and to, to be clear on the, the value proposition is really going to be great for the sector. Yeah, but it's also about understanding that it isn't a homogenous sector. Mm. There is large social enterprises and there's small social enterprises. And, you know, the ability for communities to create social enterprises using local skills, local talent to address local issues is really important because that grassroots is what has driven so much of the energy yep. in social enterprise. Um, but at the same time, you do need the bigger end of scale, like in your bathrooms here is who gives a crap toilet yep. paper. You know, you need the the marketing and the visibility that people can go, oh, I get that. Oh, yes, I can see that. I, I buy who gives a crap too. Yeah. You know, um, they might not necessarily buy of the small little social enterprise in a rural town, but they might get that one. So you need to be able to demonstrate case studies and, and inspiring stories right across the spectrum to be able to understand the depth and breadth of the social enterprise sector here in Australia, which is fantastic. I love that. And I sort of see similar like, um, what's like growing pains or like just um, challenges, like how do you cater to many different types and, you know, in a, in a very broad church, so to speak. So, yeah. you know, the B Corp community is a good example of trying to understand, you know, you've got one person B Corps and then there's Unilever. So, Absolutely. And Denone yeah. and, you know, these other Patagonia. So yeah. how do you kind of catered to all and you need different models and practice and time and, you know. And Helene, who's the chair of the Social Enterprise World Forum Global team, yep. you remember her at the um, was, yep. at the Social Enterprise World Forum last year mm. and she said that it's a movement. Yep. And that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. It's super cool as well. It makes it me feel cooler. It's like how do we make social enterprise business as usual? Yeah, you know, yep. how do we actually take a mechanism in our sect, in our life, which is capitalism, and say, actually, we can do this with better outcomes. My, d- my dad um, was, grew up sort of during Woodstock and like that, uh, that, that's as cool as I feel as compared to his upbringing is like, you know, being around social enterprises. <laughs> you know. I'm sure a lot of social entrepreneurs feel cool being around you, Mike. <laughs> oh, just stop. Um, plenty of cool people in the space. And it's a very exciting time. I wonder how do you think we here in Oz, I mean, I think we're probably more in that kind of early stage or mature maturing stage. How do you think we compare to other jurisdictions and um, countries globally in their social enterprise ecosystems? Yeah, look, that's a really great question because through the work that we've been doing at Social Enterprise Australia, it's given us the opportunity to really try and tap into some of those global movements because there's no point reinventing the wheel. It's really important that we take those learnings and that we can apply them here in Australia. Obviously, completely different contexts quite often, but there's a surprising growth of social enterprise, even strategies at government level right across the, mm. um, the globe. Um, looking at the way... So to answer your question, we are certainly within a social enterprise individual, I'd say we're quite, there's a lot of maturity. There's also a lot of growth and growing pains, to Mm. use your term. Mm. I think at a policy level, 
we we probably have some catching up to do. Mm. Um, but it's been really interesting understanding some of the tipping points that happened in other countries as to why social enterprise suddenly became kind of an element. And, and Scotland's a fantastic example of that and often held up to be the sort of policy um, gurus. But it was really um, speaking with one of the um, government officials there and she was saying that one of the key tipping points for them as a country was at the time of the GFC. And Scotland um, has long been looking at the issue of whether they break away from the United Kingdom. Um, that conversation came up again at the GFC. And so they did a lot of listening. The government did a lot of listening around the country and sort of went, well, okay, we've, what would the Scotland that you would dream, what would it look like? And they aggregated the responses and then the social enterprise sector went, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Tick, tick, <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah, that one's us. Oh, yeah, we do that one too. So the government was like, oh, okay, this is a sector that's actually speaking to the needs and the desires of our constituents. And that connection with the constituents is really what's missing here in Australia. Yeah, so love that. So it's about how do we actually build that momentum at the constituents' level, because that's what's going to drive a lot of policy as well. We yeah. can present all the arguments we like, but we know that politics has differing pressure points. Yeah. So we need to yep. be able to be articulate and be able to um, work towards a greater, stronger partnership with the federal government for the benefit of the sector more broadly. I love that. And isn't it interesting that you see some of these um, smaller unicameral jurisdictions that maybe aren't federated can do a lot of this consultation work and act a lot more agile method better, like, you know, Scotland, New Zealand? Yeah, but having said that, speaking to someone from Scotland the other day, she was saying how impressed she was with the work that, like, Jess and her team have been doing in relation to consulting with the sector yep. and really getting that breadth of voice and having the ability for somebody, if they want to have a say, yes. they can. Yeah. Obviously you don't have to and people oh, are very busy and, yep. and that's absolutely fine. But if you want to have your voice heard, then there is a forum to be able to do that. Tremendously inclusive. I suppose I just meant like um, getting like how closely politicians relate to people. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That's they're, they're, they're elected in, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, well. They're there to represent us. Right? I hope so. Um, any on a more positive note or, or a less sceptical note for me, um, given all the work that you're doing on the system and others are doing in the system and um, if we really are backing in the social enterprise system to thrive here in Australia by supporting the and, and backing the enablers of that system, what does success look like? What does a healthy social enterprise um, ecosystem that's thriving look like in the next five to ten years? Look, I think that a, that's a really good question and I could spend hours thinking about the answer. I think for me the the answer lies not so much in social enterprise but actually our society and actually having a thriving, equitable, fair and just community and society is that measure of success. And social enterprise is a heartfelt response to market gaps or to inequalities where somebody has seen that inequality and said, we can do better. And so if they were doing all of that better and our society was fairer, more just, more equitable, then that is the measure of success that the social enterprise sector will have helped to contribute. There won't be the only mechanism, but there would be one of the tools in our toolkit, if you like, that one are really important 
tool in that toolkit. So that, for me, I guess is the 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 end social equality is is the um, the justice is the really fair that uh, there's the really strong element around what success looks like. I lo- I always love it when people give me answers that I could never have predicted, and you just did that, and that is such an awesome way to end. <laughs> um, that was fantastic, really. It's been lovely chatting with you. How can people connect with you and learn a bit more about your amazing and impactful work? Ah, thanks, Mike. Um, thanks for having me. Look, I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably the easiest way. We also have the English Family Foundation has a website. Um, yeah, look, always up for um, broadening my understanding of the sector and, and you know, the networks and things like that. So loved connecting with people. That's what we do best. Um, so probably through LinkedIn is the easiest way um, or even on the, the website. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with me here today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's been a blast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.